This week on A Lively Experiment, Rhode Island makes the national news and not because of our great beaches. And this week is the filing deadline for candidates in the first congressional district race. Who is putting pen to paper? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio, attorney and former state representative Nick Gorham, and Providence Journal reporter Antonia Nuri Farzan. And welcome into Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. It's not the kind of publicity the Chamber of Commerce here wants. National coverage of the disastrous trip by two state employees to Philadelphia earlier this year and the continued fallout. Then last week, State Senator Josh Miller was criminally charged after being accused of keying somebody's car at Garden City, then having a changing story when speaking with the police over the course of that day and into the evening. Uh, Ian, we'll get to the senator in just a second. Uh, Philadelphia is the gift that keeps on giving. You and I were at the Ethics Commission this week, so bring us up to date what happened there. That's right. The Ethics Commission voted to launch an investigation of David Patton and James Thorson, the two uh, former Rhode Island officials who went to Philadelphia in March. In particular, they're looking if there were violations of the state's gift ban rule, which eliminates, uh, limits gifts to uh, st public employees to $25, and whether they were throwing their authority around as public officials, you know, there were intimations possibly that they were conditioned, you know, saying, you know, treat us well, otherwise scout the Philadelphia company being eyed as a potential uh, contractor on the Cranston Street Armory might not get work. And so, you know, it's about 60 days for the Ethics Commission to do its investigation, and we'll see where it goes from here. Nick, it's not the kind of uh, publicity we were hoping for in Philadelphia, New York, Washington, and beyond. No. And, you know, the national press has already kind of spread around that it looked like they were soliciting consideration on this trip uh, in exchange for something, who knows what. So it's already hurt us. You know, the Ethics Commission's going to investigate it. It's not a criminal investigation. It's not a criminal penalty. And, you know, regardless of the outcome, they've already really, really destroyed the image of Rhode Island uh, as, a, as a state where you can go and trust that you're going to be treated fairly if you want to do business there. It's really bad. I don't know about that, Nick. I mean, you know, it, the behavior that's described is certainly not good, but I, I don't know if that, um, you know, is so sweeping an indictment of the state to say that people cannot be treated fairly. I mean, I think most people would say that this is an exception rather than a rule. Are you going to uh, suggest but that this kind of behavior is pervasive by state officials? No, what I'm saying is this is one of the few times that we have national press coverage and it's really bad and it makes us look bad and that's a bad thing so I hope you know I hope the Ethics Commission does a fair investigation but just looking at the what went on and I don't think there's too much uh, issue about it it was totally inappropriate they shouldn't have done any of it mm. and um, maybe the Ethics Commission will do something about it but damage is already done that's all I'm saying yeah Antonio it doesn't help. You know, if you already have a reputation for corruption that maybe in a lot of cases is a little unfair, goes a little over the top, things have maybe been getting better, and then you have something like this, it doesn't look good. Um, but 
I guess what I've been feeling is what it's like for people from Florida all the time, embarrassing headlines. Yeah, Sorry, we, and let me push back a little bit on your pushback to Nick. During the whole Cianci years, there was not a lot of uh, development here because people knew there could be a little bit on the side. And so people kind of avoided Providence. I have friends in Charlotte who, like, once a week there's always a bizarre story from Rhode Island. I mean, it's like, it's okay, it's Friday, it's, it's uh, Rhode Island Day. So I think you don't have to have it all the time. But what Nick said, this reinforces, I think, a perception that's out there among some people that Rhode Island, you know, is it Rhode Island? Is it New Jersey? Who, who's the most corrupt this week? Right. Well, it was more than 100 years ago when muckraker Lincoln Steffens was reporting Rhode Island's <laughs> state for sale and cheap. But, you know, I, I, t I take your point, Jim, and you're right. But I think more fundamentally, if there is a single thing that could help Rhode Island economically, it's probably to improve the quality of public education. And that's something the state has been grappling with for decades. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that more in terms of a story that Antonia had this week. But I think you're right. I mean, there's no doubt it's not good from an image perspective when Rodan suffers from these kinds of controversies. I will say that the one thing that launched this is your colleague, Kathy Gregg, along with WPRI. It really goes, and we reinforce this every week, how cr critical the access to public records Absolutely. is. We would not know anything about what happened if they hadn't fought and if lawyers had not fought to get this email released. Then we get to Senator Miller. In, I mean, you probably couldn't write this script if you tried. For those who, this was breaking actually right after we uh, taped last week. Senator Miller, there was a Biden sucks sticker on somebody's car. Did that set him off? Whatever. The bottom line is he was seen very and admitted later keying somebody's car and then his story changed. And now the Cranston police are going to consider obstruction of justice charges, which takes it to another level. Yes. Your thoughts as a former legislator? I know you were in the other chamber. This, well, was um, that the upper or the <clears throat> lower chamber that you were in? I'm not really sure anymore. <laughs> no, I, I was in the House, and uh, Senator Miller has established himself as a poster child for bad behavior. If you look at what look at what happened here, um, according to him, uh, there was some people there who were he thought were going to harass him and he calls them gun nuts uh, and his remedy the way to avoid confrontation is to key their car it makes absolutely no sense it, it's just it's silly um, the only thing that uh, I left out was that there was a Biden socks sticker on the car that's been in the press uh, pictures of it and everything he's on tape keying the car um, I thought it was really interesting when the police were talking to him, he had his hands folded in that, in that sort of posture of, I don't know, closing the shop or something. I, I think it's just a fiasco. It's more bad publicity. I looked this morning, it's all over. It's all over the country. Yeah. Uh, our state looks terrible. Um, I hope the Senate does something about this. Uh, you know, they've they've sent other people packing before when they've. Well, well, he's part of the leadership, so it's not like he's just some new backbencher. It's been quiet. Have you heard anything from Senate President Ruggiero's office? No, they. I reached out to them after this incident developed last week. Did they, they say Ian who? Who, <laughs> who is it? <laughs> well, they referred me to uh, the lawyer for uh, Senator Miller. And we should remember that there's a presumption of innocence and he's entitled to his day in court. But Nick's absolutely right that this does not look good. Uh, you know, according to the Cranston police, uh, you know, it does not look good for Senator Miller. And it is another black eye, uh, you know, 
for the state. Yeah, I'm really curious if there'll be any consequences. I mean, I live in Central Mills District. It's a very liberal district, and I have not really seen anyone really that outraged or calling for his head. I mean, certainly there is a sense that it was childish, you know, that it was stupid, um, embarrassing, but not necessarily a career ender. It seems to be a right. And I think he look. He's built up a, a reputation over the years. I mean, again, was it childish? Yes, but ultimately, will that? Well, maybe it cost him his leadership. But again, when it comes to election time yeah. next year, and it comes around pretty quickly, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's going to be a problem for the leadership what to do. I mean, they don't want to do anything. Uh, but I, I think their hand may be forced in this. What, what he did is, you know, it's pretty serious. What's a senator doing saying that I, I was afraid of them because they're gun nuts? I don't know what they did. They did nothing, as far as I could tell. Well, security from, camera from footage, what he said. we didn't have audio, but didn't seem like there was a lot of interaction. No. Right, right. And so he keyed their car. Maybe it was because it had a Biden a negative bumper sticker about President Biden. I don't know. But I don't see any way that this can end really well for him or the Senate, because they've got to do something. You can't just say, ah, it's okay. Uh, you know, what if the case started gets thrown, this What if all the charges get thrown out? I will be amazed. Okay. I will be amazed. We should note the vandalism charge is a misdemeanor charge, but I think the concept of the behavior does not play well. I mean, it's not the kind of behavior that we expect from our state lawmakers. So I think the, the optics of it are quite bad, and we'll see how that resonates in the court of public opinion. I just final, can't final see thought? A, you, you, you I just, befuddled over there. I just can't see a lawmaker in that position keying a car, and he's caught on tape doing it. Yeah, you would think That's in 2023, people know that there are cameras everywhere. And broad daylight, really, too, middle yeah, of the day. You can't yeah, step yeah, out I mean, of your car, well, especially at Garden City. Yeah, at right? Garden I mean, City, yeah. If you're going to do that, do it at 3 a.m., not 3 p.m. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty advice there for anyone. Is that advice, just in case? <laughs> That's not legal advice. He, he does have a history for being really hostile toward people He'd who don't agree with, yep. with his views on... Uh, in 2014, when there was a gun debate, it was about the Second Amendment. Uh, it's a constitutional right. People were debating. A reporter asked a question, and yes, he was from uh, part of the gun nut lobby, as uh, Senator Miller would call them. But he asked a fair question, and Senator Miller said, go F yourself wow. on tape. It's still out there on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And then his bodyguard, or whatever the guy was, reinforced it by repeating the same thing. So... Uh, <clears throat> is this the kind of General Assembly we really want to have, people doing things like that? That's what I think people have to ask themselves. All right, to be continued, and he'll have a court date uh, next month. Uh, this is the long-awaited deadline. We are taping on a Friday morning uh, yesterday and today by the 4 o'clock. Uh, all the candidates for the con first congressional district to replace David Cicilline have to have taken out their papers. They'll have to get signatures back by mid-August. Antonio, by last point count when we came in, 25? 25, yeah. A lot of people we weren't expecting. Right? Yeah, a lot of names we've never heard before. I don't seem to have any public profile. You know, I had the fun task yesterday of Googling, trying to figure out who some of these people are. So we'll see how many of them actually make it onto the ballot. Uh, anything surprise you? Any of the, the, as we were saying off candle, there's some randos uh, coming in. It's, it's the people we expected, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the largest field I've seen in almost a quarter century of covering politics in Rhode Island. And, you know, there are a couple of well-known candidates, and it would seem like they have a big benefit because of their name recognition, their better ability to raise money. Uh, you know, the more candidates, you know, they'll get 
probably little slices of the vote, meaning that someone could win this race with a, a relatively small percentage of the overall, overall vote. Nobody pulled a John Holmes and forgot to uh, file by 4 o'clock. There was a famous story years ago. John, do you remember that story? No. no. John Holmes entrusted it. I think it was, were you here? Or you, anyhow, he was the Republican to a page. chairman. Yes, to a page to file. It shows you the details count because he gave it to some intern to file the papers. The kid got lost on the way to whatever, and he missed. And, he, and that was the seat that was... Um, Makeley. Makeley, yeah, Makeley who ultimately won. Freddie St. Germain. So anyhow, what do you make of this? There is a Republican candidate from there what is? we hear. Yeah, oh. did you know that? I thought there'd be at least 25 on the Republican side. <laughs> it's such an easy seat to win for a Republican, right? There are three people who have filed at this point Republicans? on the Republican side. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Excellent. Wow. Yeah, uh, read is, Antonia's coverage yeah. because I didn't know that. <laughs> one is a former Middletown Town Council member, Terry Flynn. Um, okay. Another is um, a former Marine Corps officer who lives in Jamestown. And the third is someone we don't know anything about. Right. Interesting. No. So what do you make of this? There are a lot of people running, and the Democrat primary is going to take uh, front center first. They're going to get a lot of publicity. I hope the Republicans get some publicity, too. It would be good if we could have a really competitive race for Congress. Two-party system is always best when it's competitive. Well, it'll be narrowed down to a couple of candidates, maybe three if you have an independent after the primary. The question is, and we're going to have Tim uh, White and Ted Nisi on various livelies in July, how do you begin to do a debate, and what's the criteria? I, I'm glad I'm not in their position. Yeah, I mean, uh, my radio station is planning to do a debate with the Providence Journal, and that's a what do you? Uh, that's a you know, we're still trying to figure <laughs> this out. I mean, yeah, what, we, what are you doing there? We, well, we want to see how many candidates actually return signatures, because sure. you know that will could potentially narrow the field a bit, but it, it's a big question because it's unusual to have so many candidates in a single race. And then the argument is. Sometimes they use, okay, polling, polling is almost impossible here. How much money have you raised? Well, then that, that goes to the candidates who say, you're disenfranchising me because I can't really raise the money, but I need the publicity on a debate. Yeah, yeah. Right? right. There's no really good metric, and it's tough because we all know that there are certain candidates who have a solid chance and certain candidates who really don't. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the name recognition. But, you know, you want to be fair to everyone and give them a chance to speak and say, say their piece. So how do you present that to voters? It's really tough. It's going to be interesting. So Aaron Regenberg has a lot of money, a lot of name recognition, came within a whisper of beating Dan McKee. It could be Governor Regenberg. Think of that in the lieutenant governor's race. And Sabina Matos obviously is the high profile. I wonder if you look at the Latina vote, how much Sandra Cano, who seems to be the state senator from Pawtucket, seems to be getting a lot of endorsements and raising money whether that factors into Sabina Matos's campaign. What do you yeah, think Yeah, well, about Latino that? voters are not a monolith, and Senator Cano has been a leading vote-getter in every race that she's run. She's a good advocate for herself, and uh, certainly, so, you know, there's no one block that votes with complete uniformity, so that wouldn't be the not case. Not a monolith, but every press release you see from Sabina Matos is, this is why we need a woman of color came out after the affirmative action vote yesterday. So, I mean, whether you agree with that or not, that's she's hammering away at that message. Well, yeah, so. it's identity politics, and, you know, particularly in a race where a small slice of the vote is going to determine the outcome, it's not surprising that you see those appeals and candidates trying to make their appeal on a variety of grounds. 
Okay. So come back uh, next show. We have we'll have uh, we should know a little bit better as people begin to file their papers and get their signatures. Uh, Antonia had an interesting story earlier this week on the Johnston School Committee and the Johnston, the new mayor in Johnston. So you set the table. He's concerned about their finances. So there's always been a dividing line between town and uh, schools, but ultimately it's the mayor who has to present a balanced budget. Exactly, yeah, it's a dilemma we've seen a lot of towns over the year that the school department makes up often the biggest chunk of their budget, probably about half the budget in Johnson or more. and Love Towns, or, or more, yeah. And the town doesn't actually have a lot of say over how much money, how that money is spent. They don't have a lot of leeway there to tell the school department what to do and how much to pay the teachers, because that's an independent body. Um, the mayor is the one who has to send out the tax bill, whose name is on that and who people are going to call and complain to if taxes go up. So in this case, the mayor of Johnson is now looking to have more control. Um, he's saying, we'll give the schools more money, but we want to say and how they're spending money and how many staff they have. He thinks they have too, many, too much staff. He's doing an audit. He wants them to adopt all these recommendations from an out-of-state consultant, basically to make everything more efficient in terms of how tax dollars are spent. How's that going over with the school committee? Not great. Um, I think part of it maybe could be the fact that it was described as a takeover, which is a pretty loaded term. You picture the Providence School takeover, and this is not that. I mean, there's no one trying to change the curriculum. They're basically just saying, let the town financial officers have a say in the school finances. But the school department, after about a week of silence, came out and said, this is a terrible, misguided idea. We absolutely oppose this, and now both sides have lawyered up. But at the same time, the school committee is in a huge deficit. It's a couple million. I mean, they're not going to go out and, you know, have a bake sale with brownies to be able to raise the money. They've got to get it from the mayor. We haven't had a Carullo Act for a long time, have we? No. The Carullo Act, just for those, you know, named after George Carullo back in the 90s, late 80s, is if the school committee doesn't feel like it's getting the amount of money it should, it can sue the town, which makes no sense at all, because who's winning on that? The lawyers, right? Lawyers, yes. With all due respect to our, you know, legal brethren here. Entirely correct. What do you make of this situation in Johnston? Well, um, you know, the, the rule as passed down by the Supreme Court is that the uh, the Constitution of Rhode Island guarantees public education, and the and it's a specific province of the General Assembly to carry that out. And our Supreme Court has said that school committees are agents of the General Assembly. They're not necessarily the same. They're they're part of town government, but they have a much more, I would say, prominent role legally. And it's very hard for a town, which is just a, you know, a municipality protected by Article 13 of the Constitution, which is home rule, um, it's hard for a town to overcome the overwhelming power of the General Assembly that is delegated to these school committees. So I think it's great politics by Policina because it's the only way that he can make his point. But ultimately, the school committee has all the aces in this in this debate. If it legally. were ever to go to court. Yes. And that's why and you that's see them win a lot in, in court on Carullo Acts. Yes. We spent a lot of money on public education in Rhode Island, and the results are not all that great, as we know. So it's in some respects, it's surprising that we haven't seen more municipal officials take this kind of aggressive action that might play well with citizens, if not legally, as Nick lays out. So it'll be interesting to follow this as where it goes from here in Johnston. Also, one just footnote, interesting to see two former gubernatorial candidates involved in this issue peripherally, at least with Alan Fung and Helena Folks, who's part of the school building committee in Johnston.
Yeah, and Joe Policino, this is Junior. He's taken over for his father, who was there a long time, actually former state senator. Um, so it's kind of a baptism by fire. Has he talked at all about the Charlie Lombardi model? Charlie, for years, has said, hey, you know what? You, The school committee mm -hmm. should be sending out tax That's bills. exactly what Mayor Policina told me. Yeah, he feels the exact same way. He says, you know, if you talk to mayors, town managers, a lot of them would feel that way. And so what's the next step on this? They're going to try to get together and talk a little bit? or Yeah, um, the way the mayor put it to me, they're still trying to sit down at the table and work something out. What they're really trying to do is avoid something where they do go to court or just cost a lot of money. Okay. Not necessarily going to end in town's favor. I think you would need legislative action to enable school committees to send bills out. But oh yeah, you, you know, can't just snap option. your fingers. Yeah. And, but and for what it's worth, um, you know, my firm has represented many, many different min municipalities around the state. We typically represent uh, either the school committee or the town council. This tension has been around for a long, long time. Yeah. It comes up every spring when they're trying to put their budgets because together. the town council or the city council can say we're going to cut you a million dollars but we can't tell you what that's going to be right. ultimately the school committee holds the chit that if they're getting underfunded then they go to court or they go to the state right 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 all right let's do this i have a couple more local issues i want to get to but i don't want to short us on uh, outrages and or kudos ian let's begin with you this week antonia's colleague amy russo had a good story this week in the providence journal about how pedestrian safety activists were trying to get 15 years of crash data from the state DOT, and the DOT is refusing to make the information available. They, I guess this is a commonality with some other states. They fear it could be used in lawsuits, but there's a compelling public interest in this kind of data, so it's outrageous that it's not publicly available. And if there's a problem, fix the intersection, right? It's like instead of we, won't, we don't want to show you what it is. Yeah, that was a great story. Antonio, yeah. what do you have this week? You know, last time I was on here, I was complaining about public records. So I will give kudos this time to the Cranston Police Department because we've now had two in recent weeks incidents where politicians have gotten arrested in Cranston. And both times the Cranston Police Department has really quickly put out body camera video, full detailed arrest report and statement from the arrest. And, you know, whenever a politician gets arrested, people immediately start wondering, did they get special treatment? You know, were there different circumstances for them? So I think putting that out there and having that transparency is really important. That's a great point. And in this case, it was a Republican city council mm -hmm. member and a and Democrat. Democrat. Yeah. So you can't play and it's a Republican mayor. At the end of the day, that should be the template for mm -hmm. every single <laughs> um police force in the state, right? Correct. Because isn't yeah. that whole Providence is like, we have to go through this review process? Put it out. Yeah. And I think both times it's within 24 hours of the incident. Yeah, very. Yeah. And, and really told the story. Yeah. Every, yeah. every piece of it, yeah, was out there. Nicholas? Kudos? Whatever you want. Sure. It's your, the floor is yours. <laughs> My goodness, he comes with like five pages of notes. <laughs> what do you got? Well, I had to print this out. This is uh, from a column that Mark Batinkin wrote last, last week. Um, he was, uh, it was sarcastic. This is sarcasm, but it's got a ring of truth to it in some ways. Um, this is on his article about inflation. Uh, in an unsettling economic indicator, the state's labor unions have announced, planned, have announced plans to lay off 20 members of the General Assembly, prompting one targeted rep to grumble, quote, this is unfair. They said if we played ball, They'd give us lifetime positions, and now this. Oh, that's unfair to the General <laughs> Assembly members, Nick. Come on. Um, I didn't write it. That's Well, okay, you can blame Patinka. But you, <laughs> as we know, sometimes when you're the messenger, you get shot. Just because you don't write it, 
Um, let's go in the last couple of minutes. We've got a couple other General Assembly things. You've been covering a lot of the shoreline access. So tell me what you think as this bill has gone and now passed. And so what does it mean? from a General Assembly standpoint, the new law. Yeah, I actually think the majority of people, majority of situations are not going to notice a difference now it's passed. Basically what happened is that the line between public and private now is where a lot of people thought the line was to begin with. It's now, it was the mean high tide line. It's now the mark that's left by the last tide plus a buffer zone of 10 feet where you can walk. And if you were to ask the average person who knows a little bit about this, but maybe not a lot, they'd probably point to you where that seaweed is, where that watermark is from the last high tide. But what a lot of people didn't know until recently is that the mean high tide actually sometimes is way out here. It's a scientific measurement. It can be totally different. Which nobody knew what it was. Yeah, so nobody so could they find would it. Yeah. And the homeowner would send a cop out and say, you can't come. Yeah. I love it. I read one article that said uh, 10 feet above the visible high tide line, either a line of vegetation, scum, shore objects, or other markers. So if you see the scum, you can go up from there. What, what do you think about this in terms of enforcement? Well, first of all, I didn't understand what they meant by scum. In the, <laughs> you know, the uh, little phone. bay scum that comes up, whatever. With all due respect to Save the Bay, you know, there's a little scum there. Well, um, it doesn't mean mobsters washing up, Nick. No, well, I, I didn't think that, but uh, as to the, the core of the issue here, the General Assembly, I think, has the power to do what they did to designate an area uh, because the Constitutional Article 1, Section 17 says uh, that, in my opinion, it says this can be done. But it's subject to other constitutional rights that many people along the shore have in that it may be their property and it may not. If I were an oceanfront homeowner and I didn't like this law, I would hold off a little while before doing anything because it may not be that bad. And you can always challenge a law, um, maybe not always, but there's time. And I, I think the General Assembly is trying to do something that a lot of people are very mad about because much of our coast is now being bought up by people from out of state who don't want Rhode Islanders walking on the beach in front of their house. That's the real core of it. This was a feel-good moment when the legislature passed this measure and Governor McKee signed it. But as Nick is suggesting, it's probably a matter of time until there are some legal challenges. And, Jim, we were talking before the show, you asked the right question, you know, who, who will be the arbiter in settling these cases? And it might be a variety of different forms. But, you know, I think the, the, the legacy of this measure will take time to figure out and it will be unsurprising if there are a variety of legal challenges that arise in the years to come. There are people from Florida who just laugh at this. You think of the access to Florida beaches. You don't have to be charged. You can go whenever you want. You were showing me the picture from Hawaii, right? I mean, it's sacrosanct out there getting to the water. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we like to think it's sacrosanct here, but the reality can be a lot more complex depending on the, this issue of property rights and how that comes into play. You had a great article a couple of months ago on the guy trying to walk around mm -hmm. Rhode Island. So tell me, yes. we've got a, about a minute left and the barriers that he Face. Yeah, exactly. And that one of the things he runs into a lot is seawalls. With, with this new law, you can't get up on someone's seawall. So if you're trying to walk the entire coast of Rhode Island, which is what he's been trying to do, you actually really can't. You, there's places where you just How have to How much of this will help him, though, in terms of being legal? Because there was one part in your article that he said he didn't want to do that because he was concerned about being on somebody's, you know, legally right, yeah. being on somebody's property. It will definitely help him when he's walking along the beach because now it'll be very clear where he's allowed to be and where he isn't if he's walking in front of someone's home. Um, the issue is 
just any kind of man-made obstacles, you know, piers, riprap, that kind of thing. That's where you just have to get back on the street and walk around or trespass. Riprap, not riffraff. Riprap. All right. Just not the bookstore. Sure. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> okay, folks, that is uh, all the time we have. Uh, so good to have you with us this week. Ian and Nick and Antonia, hope you have a great week. And, folks, just a programming note. We will be off for the 4th of July week next week. Our crew is going to get a little bit of a break so you can enjoy an encore edition of Lively. And if you don't catch our shows Fridays at 7 or Sunday at noon, we are all over social media. We archive all of our shows at ripbs.org lively, Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you get your favorite co- podcast. So enjoy your week next week with our encore edition and come back here in two weeks as we'll have a brand new Lively experiment for you. Hope you have a great weekend and a better week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.